ask you to remain in that spirit of prayer. Because the Spirit is testing us this morning. Challenging us. Father, Testing us right now. Father, I pray that the words you're at town in ETA be translated speak, Lord, and receive. Take it. Plant it deep. Shape and fashion us that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds. Speak, Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes of your Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes and the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over belief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace, we'll stand on your promises. And by faith, we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled. invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the passage that Andy read for us just a few moments ago. I would also invite you to pull out your Connect card, because we're going to be using it over the next few moments. If you don't have a Bible with you, that is perfectly fine. There's, there are Bibles in the pew rack right in front of you. And if you find page 928 in that Bible, there's a few that are scattered others, but most all of them, page 928, you'll find Acts chapter 4. If that doesn't lead you to Acts chapter 4, tap your neighbor on the shoulder and go, I don't know what he's talking about, but I need Acts chapter 4. And you can find it. We come to the next step in this movement 
started by the prime mover himself, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, witnessed to in the healing of a man crippled from birth, not eventually for that man's sake, although he had the blessing of benefiting from it, but to God's glory, to affirm the fact that in fact the kingdom of God was beginning to break into our world. And Satan says, now, 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 we'll have none of this. And so immediately he begins to ramp up pressure against the young fledgling church. We all know what happens to trees whose roots grow this way very quickly, but don't grow deep. They tend to fall over in a bad storm, and Satan thinks, I will crash them around themselves. And so he brings the Jewish leadership to bear on them, and they stand fearless against them. (laughs) Well, never to be nonplussed, Satan says, well, if I can't get at them from the outside, I will get at them from the inside. And so we have the passage that we have read this morning. And as I was preparing for today, like many of you, I was so caught with chapter 5. And how in the world do we deal with chapter 5 that I had a hard time understanding that that really is not the core of the passage of the verses in front of us. The core, the thing that makes the difference in this entire story is what happens in verses 32 to 35 of chapter 4. If we understand those four verses, then we understand that the story of Barnabas and the story of Ananias and Sapphira are nothing more than case studies proving the premise that is laid out in those four verses. So we're going to spend an inordinate amount of our time in those four verses that then will lead us to the follow-up stories as we move toward our own response. You remember it says in verse 32, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, which was then distributed for each person's basic needs. In these four verses, we find the key to a church that God is blessing and using. But I have to say this as we begin I do not want you to think these are somehow another prerequisites for God's blessing. In other words, if we do these things, then God will bless us. No, 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 no. See, that's the problem. That's why we, we, no disrespect to our Jewish friends, but that's why we act like Jews. We act like Old Testament believers. We think we have to do things so that God in response will bless us. What happens is we do things because God has blessed us. You see, we experience his blessing in our lives, and as a result of that, certain things happen. Certain changes occur. And in this passage, we see four things that happened in the church because God's blessing was resting on them. And the first thing, the primary thing, the thing that I believe underscores and becomes the fountain, the wellspring of everything else that we see in this passage, including the two case studies, is that one word, one. Unity. That is what defined this church. They were united. 
in heart and in soul. The Holman translate that second word mind. And the only reason I don't like using that word is because in today's world, when we think of the mind, we think of cognition. We think of they all were thinking the same way. And that was not the case at all. As a matter of fact, if there's anything we learn in the New Testament about God's church, it is that he, by his plan, wants us to be diverse. He wants us to be different. And he wants us to bring all of our differences and our diversity and our different perspectives and our different ideas and our different approaches and bring it all together for one common good. So of all the examples that the Holy Spirit could have given Paul when he was describing the church in 1 Corinthians, what does he use? He uses the analogy of a body. Let me read for you from verses 4 to 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. See, in other words, Paul says, We are radically different from each other, and yet we are united as one in heart and soul because we understand why God calls us his ecclesia. That word that means ones who have been called out by the convener so that they then can be sent out. And that's not just a New Testament phrase. That was a Greek term. It was very well known in the Greek and Roman world. Whenever there was a problem in a village, the leader of that village would call an ecclesia. Leaders would be called out, come together, discuss the issue, and then sent out to make a difference in what was going on in the village at that time. And that was the word that Jesus chose to call us, his church. The thing that united them together was their unity through the Holy Spirit by the death of Christ in God the Father. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us today to have unity. What does it mean for a church to see God's blessing by being united? Well, I found a quote that was meant so much to me that I printed it on little green cardstock. Might match my jacket, but green cardstock, and laid it on the resource table. And if you are struck by this quote as I am from A.W. Tozer, you may want to grab a copy and stick it in your Bible. To reference further because I want you to understand how unity occurs what God does and what the church does in order for unity to occur in the church and I love the way Tozer writes he writes as if he were sitting in a room just talking across the chair to you from from one chair to another and here are his exact words from the pursuit of God 1947 by the way just so you know how true it is 70 years later Has it ever occurred to you, I love it, has it ever occurred to you, Tozer writes, that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are also automatically tuned to each other? You ever thought about that? 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, the same pitch pipe, are automatically also all tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Even so, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Now, does that make sense to you? 
It's not about, unity doesn't come from cleaning up horizontal relationships. Unity in Christ comes from making sure that our vertical relationship is right. And so when we are in union with Christ, when we are in fellowship with Him, and we are in sync with the Holy Spirit, guess what? We're also in sync with each other. It doesn't mean that we will always think exactly the same way on things, but it means that we'll be united in our hearts, in the purpose which God has called us, and we'll be united to the depth of who we are, passionately committed to God and to one another. This was the quality out of which Everything else flowed, I believe, was this sense of unity. Now, some of you who have read your New Testament enough may not remember exactly where, so I'm going to tell you where. It's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. All of a sudden, it makes sense. Let me read you what John said about 60 years after this event to the church. Remember, John was one of the ones that had been arrested along with Peter. Listen to what John says. Listen. I know you are, but just, I'm just saying, listen. If we walk in the light, in the light of Christ, as he himself is in the light, guess what the result is? You might remember? You might want to quote it for me. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? With whom? With each other. You see, it's Tozer. Tozer was tracking John here. If we are, we are walking in the light, in sync with the Holy Spirit, guess what? We have fellowship with each other. We don't need 17 fellowship meals to try to get ourselves all on the same page. We just need to get in tune with Christ. That was the key to the early church. They were in tune with the Holy Spirit, and so because of that, there was unity. Now, out of that, look what flows. I'm not going to necessarily put them in exact order, but just we'll look through all of them. One of the things that grew was there was grace. Look at verse 33 again. It says, great grace was on all of them. This is the grace of the Lord that came upon them, and they recognized grace for what it was, and their response was thankfulness. Now, let me just take a second and ask the question. What makes grace grace? What makes love convert to grace? What is the difference? I love my wife, wherever she is. Oh, there she is. I love my wife passionately. I love my children. I would give my life for any one of them if need be. I love you. I love serving the Lord by serving you. And all of those loves are wonderful. But they are not grace. What makes love grace? The answer is... Grace is love that I don't deserve. You see, I love my wife and she loves me, and we have this mutual relationship with each other, and we build each other up, and we strengthen each other, and we expect things from each other, and we give over and above to one another. And that's a wonderful love, but what makes grace grace is that I don't deserve His grace. I don't deserve His love. I have done nothing to merit it. It reminds me of the wonderful story of Mephibosheth. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Mephibosheth. I just love saying that name. Can't spell it, but I love saying it. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan, the good friend of David's. And after Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle and David is crowned king, David asks, are there any of Saul's descendants still living so that I can show them love? And they said, well, there's one, Mephibosheth, the one that's crippled in both of his feet, the son of Jonathan. Well, where is he? He's at Lodabar. 
Well, bring him to me, David said. And so they brought Mephibosheth. And I'm sure Mephibosheth figured this man, my father tried to kill every, with every breath he had, or my grandfather tried to kill with every breath he had. I might as well just go ahead and roll my shirt collar down now because the axe is coming. And Mephibosheth fell before David's face. And David said, oh, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, because I'm going to return to you all of your grandfather's property, his fields, and you will have a permanent place at my table as one of my sons. And Mephibosheth's words are well worth memorizing. It says that he, the word literally in the Hebrew is he groveled. He fell on his face before David and said, who is your servant that my master would take account of a dead dog like me. Beloved, if you can't say that to Christ, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. I don't understand grace. Because that is what Christ did for us. Not only to say, I'll forgive you. Not only to say, I'll give you a place in eternity. He says, no, you will be my child. You will be my brother, Jesus said. And the Father says, and I will be your father, and you will be my son. You will be my daughter. What do we do to deserve that? Not a thing. When was the last time we wept in thanks for all that God has done for us? But it wasn't just great grace experience. They also experienced great power. That's also there in verse 33. They were giving testimony with great power because they had the resurrection life of Christ living in them, walking with them, empowering them. You remember in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes this statement. In verse 4, he says, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, so we too may walk in a new way of life. In other words, we walk with resurrection And so the church experienced power because they were unified in sync with the Holy Spirit, in sync with one another, and they experienced power and grace. And then fourthly, they also had care for each other. Both care for material needs and care for the spiritual needs. Now this is not some form of communism. I don't have time to go into this right now, but please don't be misunderstood. No one forced them to do this. This was a voluntary thing. If it was, if it was required, what was the big deal with Barnabas? Okay, obviously... It was something that people who had the financial resource to do, and it was keyed on the idea that they understood that nothing that they had ultimately belonged to them. Everything they had ultimately belonged to God. God had given it to them. This is why tithing is so important for us to understand. It is not some rule that we follow. It is a realization that everything we have, every hour we are given to work, to earn, every physical ability that we have comes from God's hand and our thanks to him is to give an offering to him, not so he will bless us, but what? Because he already has blessed us. We're not going to force God's hand in anything. He's already given us more than we could ever ask for to begin with. All we do is come to him, and we support the work of his people, the work of his church, so that we can continue to move forward with power and grace and unity to care for those around us. Once we understand that, then we begin to understand the second part of the story. And we start with the example of Barnabas. It's really a very simple story. I won't spend a lot of time on it. 
Barnabas represents spiritual transparency. Barnabas was a Levite. He was originally from the island of Cyprus. We're not sure if he was a Cypriot by, by nature or by citizenship, but he came to the island of Cyprus, but he was a Levite, which means he worked in the temple. He was a temple helper. He wasn't actually a priest, but he was working in the temple, and he had been blessed with some financial ability resources and he saw a need in the church so he came and he and he sold what he had and he brought the money and gave it to the church so that it could be used not to distribute equally to everybody but based on what people's needs were so there was no needy person among them you remember jesus back in john 13 made a statement that is one of my all-time favorites i mean what can you not love about what jesus says but one of my favorites because you've heard me quote it so many times verses 34 and 35 of john 13 jesus jesus himself said i give you a new command Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what was the testimony to the unity of the church. This example was the example of Barnabas. But then we turn to chapter 5, and we have another example. And there are a lot of things we can learn from the example of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going to point out just a few of them. First of all, even the early church wasn't perfect. Did you get that? Just because they were unified, just because they were united, just because they were growing, just because they were worshiping, just because they were caring, just because they had strength and grace, they still were not perfect, and neither will we be. But when they found a problem in their church, they dealt with it quickly. Look at what it says in chapter 5. First of all, we have there the, 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 the deception perpetrated, verses 1 and 2. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let's make sure we understand what the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was. It was not that they didn't give the whole amount of money. They didn't have to. Matter of fact, in a minute, we're going to see Peter told them, you didn't have to give any of it if you didn't want to. It's because they had said they would do one thing and thinking, well, nobody will know the difference. They, all, they did something different and kept part of it for themselves. They lied. They, they broke the unity, the bond of unity, the bond of mutual trust within the church family by deceiving, by being deceptive in what they did. That's why... Peter's words are so telling. And you don't have to be a scholar. You get one of those things like Bible Gateway or one of the other Bible apps where you can look at 25 or 30 different translations in the English, and you'll begin to get a feel as you see the different ways certain words are translated. Let me just commend one very relatively simple process to you. If you're studying at home a passage, be it for a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study or just your own personal study, Take a piece of paper, a piece of notebook paper, and your favorite translation, NIV, Holman, ESV, whatever, and just take a few minutes and just write the verse out, okay? Circle some key words, and then begin looking at other translations and write above and below those words as you circle different translations that other people use to translate that same word from the Greek or the Hebrew if it's Old Testament. And it'll be amazing what you'll learn without you knowing a single word of the biblical languages just to see how other scholars translated that word. And so when you get to verse 3, and Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds 
from the field. You will find that that word keep back is actually the word embezzle. Now, we know what embezzling is. Can you embezzle from yourself? Well, no. You embezzle something that belongs to somebody else. An embezzlement means that you sneakily take money that does not belong to you. So Peter, in essence, was saying, Ananias, when you came to the church and said, we're going to sell our property and we're going to bring the proceeds and give it to the church, or when you presented yourself that this is the amount, you, in essence, were taking something that belonged to God. You know what I think? I think Ananias and Sapphira watched it how Barnabas was patted on the back and how he was, boy, that is great. God bless you. They said, well, you know what? We can do that too. We got a piece of property. Let's sell it. Maybe at the moment they were completely sincere. We want to come forward singing just as I am without one plea. And they come forward and say, we just want to say that we are going to sell our field up in Galilee and we're going to give the money. Everybody's going, that is awesome. God bless you. That is wonderful. We're so thankful that God has touched your heart. And they went and they sold it for thousand pieces of silver. They had this thousand pieces of silver, and they began to think, you know, nobody really knows how much we paid for this. Let's just, let's say we sold it for 900 and keep the other 100. No, that's no big deal. Nobody will know. Or maybe they said, well, you know, God will know, but he's forgiving, he's loving, he knows we've had a little rough time, and it'll be fine. Because they wanted the praise. And so the next Sunday, Ananias is at church, Sapphira had to stay home, and Ananias is at church, and they're singing, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. And Ananias comes forward with an envelope. And in that envelope, there's 900 pieces of silver. And he lays it at Peter's feet, head bowed in mock humility, knowing all the time he's lying. That's not the price. That's not the amount that God gave him for that piece of property. And he goes and he sits down. He looks up and he wonders, why is Peter not smiling? And Peter says those words. In verse 4, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, buried him. Three hours later, in walks Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. You say, well, how could she not know? Well, sometimes things happen fast, you know. For whatever reason, the Bible says she didn't know. Maybe she thought he'd stay for extra fried chicken at the potluck afterwards. I don't know. So Peter says, tell me, did you sell the field for this price? Yep, that's it. That's for the prize. That's that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out. And buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard. Beloved, let's just stop and think about this just for a second. A few weeks ago, I told you not to get so caught up in the healing of the crippled man that we can't take a step back and look at the deeper truth, which was that this was a sign that God's blessing rested on this new fledgling church. Doesn't mean that we should all go out and find people that have been crippled from birth, and say, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. If God calls us to do it, we should do it with faith. But that is not a litmus test. The litmus test was Peter's faith to trust Jesus who said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. And in the same way, we cannot get so caught up in the fact that Ananias and Sapphira died in this instant that we miss the bigger story, which is God hates lying. He hates 
dishonesty in his church. You know why? Because it destroys the unity. If we can't trust each other, how can we ever be unified? How can we be united if we don't trust one another? And so, we need to understand that God takes His church and the work of His church very, very seriously. That's why they were afraid. Now, I don't mean that they were afraid they were going to, you know, well, maybe I make a mistake, I'm going to die too. I don't think it was that, but I think it was more than just, yes, you know, I have a godly fear of... It's like, no, we understand how serious this is. What a serious matter it is to toy with God and with His church. Because if you keep reading on down in chapter 5, you find out the church continues just to explode with growth. Why? Because there was integrity in the church. And this is what is so important. Because you see, if the church that God blesses is known by its unity and its grace and its strength and its caring, what sustains that, what upholds that, is honesty and integrity. We must be who we say we are. Because if we're not, when we're not, the world out there writes across the doorpost of our church, H-Y-P-O-C-R-I-T-E, hypocrites, we know you. We heard you when you cussed out that waiter, waitress at Denny's the other morning. And we know where you go to church. We know what you say you believe. We saw you when you said, I'm opposed to this, and yet you did it. Or you say, I am in favor of this, and then didn't do it. And even more important, within the church family itself, beloved, the reason I can speak this is because I know what it feels like. I know what it's like to want people to think better of us, better of me than I really am. It's a huge temptation. You see, hypocrisy is not people thinking better of you than you really are. Hypocrisy is us trying to make people think we're better than we really are. That's hypocrisy. And so, I say to you, and I also have been guilty of that. I have been Ananias. And this week, I wrestled. I wrestled asking God to reveal to me places where I had not been absolutely, completely honest and a man of integrity in my relationship with you, my relationship with him, my relationship in the community, the things I say, the actions I take, the, the, the way my thought life is. You see, the key all goes back to, is Jesus Christ Lord of all? So I ask you today, as a fellow struggler, as a fellow traveler, I ask you today, is Jesus Christ Lord of all of your life? Men, when you're walking through the grocery store, and that lady walks in front of you who's maybe wearing something a little bit too provocative, and you take a second glance, do you immediately stop and say, Lord, be Lord of my lust? Ladies, when you see somebody get something that you wish you had, they buy a new car or get a new appliance or have something done to their yard or whatever, and you nurse jealous feelings, do you stop right then and say, Lord, be the Lord of my jealousy, the Lord of my selfishness. Is Jesus Christ 
Lord of all. So you see, beloved, just so make sure sure you understand, it's not a prescription of us doing certain things so that God will bless us. It is releasing things into His Lordship so that He can bless us and then we can experience the things that we've listed. Unity, grace, power, care. But it starts with us truly saying what we believe and then living what we say. You see, we fall into this pattern of thinking, and I don't know, well, I do know where we got it because we're sinners and we picked it up from previous generations and we've carried it on. We've gotten this idea in our heads that our spiritual maturity is measured by what we do. Lisa Dean gave me this wonderful little book quite a while back, Coffee Shop Conversations, and I finally got around to reading it, or I'm getting around to reading it, and there's a line that I want to share with you. A large majority of evangelical Christians and church leaders measure their own spiritual maturity by rule-keeping rather than by the fruit of the Spirit. How do we measure spiritual maturity in the life of the church? be honest with you, that's one of the things that concerns me about the church covenant and our church constitution. I'm not, I don't think it was the original intent of the writers of the, of the covenant, but what the covenant has become is a list of do's and don'ts. If you do all these things and don't do these things, then you'll be in fellowship with us. But if you miss just one of them, we're going to have to have a conversation. We're not sure we can have fellowship. How in the world could we ever have a list that would, confine, that would define everything? Well, there's no way. So we pick a few of our pet ones. So on the last Sunday in July, immediately following the morning service, we're going to have lunch together and we're going to have a family meeting together. And I'm going to set aside as moderator 30 minutes of our meeting to discuss what do we really believe and do we need to make some changes in the way we express what we believe? Because I think it's very important that we learn to build our Christian testimony not on what we do and don't do, but on what is the attitude of our hearts. How, is the, how are the fruit of the Spirit growing in us? Because then we can be people of integrity and honesty. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this little card. And just pull it out right now. Everybody just pull it, pull it out. You got it? I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. First of all, are you willing to say, Christ, I want to be united with you by your Spirit, no matter what it means I have to change in my life, what I have to do? I want to submit and surrender my life to being united with Him. You're a Christian? I'm sure... I. I'm sure. I believe Ananias and Sapphira were believers. I think they were just led astray by the, by the enemy, by the seeds of hypocrisy. So even when they died, guess where they ended up? They ended up in heaven. God called them home, what he did. He said, you're hurting my church. I'm just going to bring you home. Take you out of the game. So are you willing today to say, I want to surrender my life to be in union with Christ? Crucify my desires, my passions, and surrender to me. Secondly, 
Would you be willing today, like the early church did, to look for opportunities to show care? It could be material care. It could be spiritual care, especially to those within this family of faith. I'm not saying we should ignore people outside, like somehow or another we're better, or you know, we don't want to become some little you know, enclave or something. But Jesus said, the way they'll know you're my disciples is the way you love each other. So would you be willing today to say, yes, I am asking the Lord to help me to watch for opportunities to show care to my brothers first and also others as I have the opportunity. I know some of you don't even, we hardly even see each other except on Sundays. You're out there in the world and God may give you all kinds of other opportunities. But here's the one that's most important. Here's the one that put me on my knees yesterday morning. Beloved, let me just stop. I got to tell you this. I know, I know, I told you Satan was going to be tempting us. Holy Spirit's testing us. Satan's tempting us because I know we've had a lot in the service this morning. But I want to tell you this. I have wrestled all month long with this sermon series, and I couldn't figure out why. What's so hard about preaching through Acts? What's the big deal? Well, it's because Jesus was saying to me, Steve, are you a man of integrity? Completely and holy. Yesterday morning, I got on my knees and I said, Lord, actually it was Friday morning, sorry, Friday morning, I said, Lord, I want to be, with your help, as honest and filled with integrity as I can. And when I slip, immediately bring it to my attention. I can confess it, repent of it, and abandon it. So now I can come to you and ask you if you need to do the same thing. If so, now's the time to If you say, well, you know what, Pastor, I really am thinking about that, but I'm not so sure I want to mark this card because I don't know who's going to see this card. That's okay. If you want me to pray for you and with you about it, just send me a text. You don't have to mark the card. If you want to, it's fine. Maybe, Paul, that's part of the integrity. <laughs> the fact that I need that. I need to be a person of integrity. I can guarantee you people don't stand around flipping through the Connect card, staring at them. You do what you need to do. This is about you and the Lord. I'm just asking you to do this if you want to so that Daryl and Greg and I can be praying with you and for you just like we want you to be praying for us. Because we will never have unity until we are people of integrity. And once we become people of integrity and we're open and honest with God and with each other, as we focus on Him, being in sync with Him, the unity will just explode out and grace and strength and care will flow. And we will know that God is God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for what it teaches us. I don't think there's a one of us in this room that call this their church home that does not want us to be absolutely and completely united. Even if we don't always agree on how to do everything, certain things, we all are united in what we believe you've called us to do. I'd like to think that we are that, but sometimes we get distracted. And if so, I pray you'll forgive us for that and get us back on focus again. As the old guys used to say, making the main thing the main thing. So, Father, whatever it is, we recognize that it starts with getting ourselves in sync with you and with your son. Surrendering so that he can be Lord of all of our lives. It means we look for opportunities to live out that unity in the way we care for each other. And it means most of all, Father, that we covenant with 
you and with each other to be people of honesty and integrity. Gone, I pray, are the days when we come here wearing one mask and the minute we get out of the parking lot, we take that mask off the people that we really are. Help us to be people who love you and who love each other so that we can serve.